Many of you know that for the uh, kind of the month of May, uh, we're, we're trying to make our way through the book of Jude, and we're going to do that successfully somehow, uh, but we're not going to be in Jude today. Uh, but that's not going to mess up the fact that we are still going to memorize uh, our verses. And so uh, two weeks ago, we started in Jude. And it said, we are going to memorize uh, the end, the last two verses, verses 24 and 25, which form the doxology of Jude. And so uh, at the end of the month, there will only be blanks up there. And so you know how that works because we did that with the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but you want to go ahead and put the slide up there, Audiel? He's got to find it. I'll stall for you. I've got nothing else to say. You said you were going to be ready. And then, um, then when we come back to the sermon, I'll have Raymond come up here, and apparently he's going to preach the message. So since we're good to go, just like that. So, all right, we're just going to, if you have your Bibles, you can just open up to the book of Jude. Um, it's one chapter. It's right before Revelation. It's verses 24 and 25. And we're just going to say these verses together. If you don't have the ESV version, that's okay. You'll just sound a little bit different. But I think most of us have ESV. And so that's the one I'm going to be reading. And remember, the book of Jude is about persevering. Uh, there's, there's false teaching, and he's calling the church to trust in God. And then ultimately, at the very end of the book... He reminds us, it's not we that ultimately keep ourselves in the faith, but it's God who keeps us by his grace. And so those are the two verses that we are then going to read. It's this doxology, this absolute praise to God. And so, if you will, read verses 24 and 25 with me. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. And so, uh, it's up there now. <laughs> uh, so I encourage you, read over those verses over and over and over. Those are probably the most well-known verses in Jude, uh, but they're good verses that just talk about the hope that we have. Uh, we are not going to be in Jude today, and so we're just going to kind of step away from that, but I wanted to, to highlight that. That is what we're memorizing through the month of May, and on May 29th, uh, we will say those verses, hopefully from memory. Uh, today we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, verses uh, 14, 15, and 16, and we'll be there in a few moments. Uh, but many of you know that on April 25th, I, I flew from the United States, and I don't know, 20-something hours later, made it to Moldova. I went with our interim regional minister, Marcus Elmer. Uh, he's the regional minister of the North American Baptist Northwest Churches, so that's Washington, Oregon, Western Montana, and Idaho. And also went with Pavel Sandu, who is the pastor of one of our sister NAB churches up in Tacoma. His church is a Moldovan-Romanian church. And so over the month of March, we here at Timberline, we, we raised money 
to be able to, to give to the churches over in Moldova as they're supporting and they're serving Ukrainian refugees. And so we raised just under about $12,000. And so I went with these men and uh, for the purpose of going and seeing what is happening over there, uh, what are the churches are doing, what are the needs that are there. And so today, that's what I want to do. I just want to share what's happening there as a means of encouraging us in our faith. And we actually see that's what takes place many times in God's word. Uh, throughout the New Testament, we see that we are to be regularly encouraged by the faith of other believers in other churches in other places. Uh, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is Paul writing. He says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, and all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Timothy has come back. He's brought news about these churches to Paul and those who are with him, and they're greatly comforted. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So he says, we, we heard that you believe in the gospel, and we've heard that how you love one another and we just, we just praise God for you. In Ephesians chapter 6, uh, Paul says this, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the brother, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Paul's in prison, so he sends one of his fellow buddies over to another church that they would encourage him with the news of how Paul and others are persevering in the gospel and what God is doing. And so the title today is, is Be Encouraged, and that's my hope. My hope is that you and I, that we'd be encouraged because of what God is doing in and through the Moldovan churches. So I want us to, to rejoice and how God is working. I want us to, to grow in our love for the global church, as Raymond was talking about earlier today. And, and I want us to see that what God is doing here at Timberline is actually used to impact the world for the gospel. Because I think sometimes we miss that. We, we think we're just focusing here. But as we come to the end of the sermon, I really want us to see that what God is doing here is one of the means in which God is using to advance the gospel in other parts of the world. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read Matthew 5, 14, 15, and 16 this morning. We stand at the reading of God's word just simply as a means of reminding ourselves that God's word comes to us uh, fully inspired by God. It's his faithful message to us that we'd be equipped for every good work that he calls us to do. So Matthew 5, 14. This is Jesus talking at the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me pray. Father, Father, I pray that because of who you are and what you're doing here and so many other churches here in the Northwest and what you're doing in the churches of Moldova and all over the world, 
that our hearts would be greatly, greatly encouraged today. We serve a God who not only reigns over Washington and America, but over every inch of the universe. There is not any part of creation that does not have your fingerprint on it, that you do not rule over, that you are not supreme in and over. And so, God, may we know just through your word and the evidence that we will see that is taking place in your churches that, God, you love your church, you are faithful to your church, and you are using your church to accomplish your purposes in this world so that one day your son will return and you will gather your church for the purpose of being in your presence for all of eternity in perfect joy as we worship you. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So if you look at Matthew 5, just a couple things to point out. Um, Jesus is talking to those who are going to follow him. In, in the beginning of chapter 5, he described the Beatitudes. He's describing what it is to be a disciple. And now he says, so, so if you're a disciple, you are light in the world. Jesus said he is the light of the world, and now because we believe in him and he lives in us, we are to be light in this world. And so our lives, our words, and our actions are to bear witness to Jesus. And, and we see that it wouldn't make any sense otherwise. It would be like taking a lamp and putting it in a closet. It doesn't make any sense. You put a lamp in the middle of the room so it gives light to everything. So you are now the light of the world that you would shed the light of Jesus all over the world. And in verse 16, we see the reason. We see the hope that God would use our good works, that God would use the light in us, the things that we do, the things that we say, so ultimately others would believe in Jesus, and when Jesus returns, they would glorify Jesus. And so that's, that's what I want us to see, is that the churches in Moldova, that as Christians, they are a light in this world, and that the very, very things that they're doing, God is using to bring other people to know him. And so I want to give just four reasons why we should be encouraged uh, by, the, by the faith, by the work that God is doing in the Moldovan churches. And so this is going to largely, uh, I'm just going to give four reasons here that also just talk about what it is to be light in this world, um, specifically regarding the Moldovan churches. So number one, the faith of the church is made known by the love of the church. So one of the things that was, was very obvious when I went over to Moldova is that there is not a vast amount of humanitarian efforts taking place to reach out to the refugees. In fact, if you were to go over there, you would see very, very, very little government activity in, any of the refu in regards to any of the serving the refugees. You would see absolutely nothing being done by the Russian Orthodox Church which most of all the Ukrainians coming over are from the Russian Orthodox Church, and they are doing absolutely nothing. But do you know who is helping? It's the evangelical churches. They are coming together, and they're doing a great work. In Matthew 5.14, it says, The disciples are to be light in the world, and the, the churches in Moldova are shining very brightly in a dark part of the world at this moment. Their arms are wide open, and they are receiving Ukrainian refugees. In fact, I have a few pictures up here. Um, the first one, so this is at the Ukrainian-Moldovan border, and everyone you see with green vests on, I know the, the lights aren't, we're going to have TV soon, 
just so you know, we're getting rid of this, uh, and we're going to put TVs up because this is really hard to see. Um, anyways, that's future. But um, all the people you see wearing vests, those are Christians, and I'm told, I don't read Russian or Ukrainian, uh, but I'm told on the back it says, praying for Ukraine. And so uh, this is right at the Moldovan-Ukrainian border, and the Christians have been allowed to set up tents so that as Moldovans are coming or Ukrainians are coming over, they're able to serve them, to bless them. In fact, the next picture uh, shows uh, they're helping them. So this is going from uh, Ukraine over into Moldova. They help them take their things. And so no one else is doing this. No other groups are there. No government agency is there. But Christians are there manning these tents. I don't think it's 24 hours a day, but they're there 12, 14, 15, 16 hours a day. Uh, the next picture shows uh, this is at a, um, this is at a, a city. I'm going to butcher the names. I think it's Ubin. And this is Pavel, the pastor over in, uh, up in Tacoma. And we have a, a van that's here filled with uh, 240 bags of just supplies for refugees. And so he's giving some of the bags to some of the people right there. In fact, there, there was so many bags and there was so much weight and so many people leaning on the van that the springs broke in the van while we were there. You could hear the pop in it. And if you've ever been around when a uh, spring breaks, you know exactly what that sound is. And it's very, very loud. Um, and I think... There's one more. So yeah, this is just, these are all supplies that churches have given. Not the government, not Orthodox churches, no one else, just the churches are the ones coming together and they're meeting the needs of those who are in Ukraine. Uh, many of you know the story of uh, the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. I encourage you, read that later. I'm just going to summarize it at this moment. But in Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives a parable. And a man walks up to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus basically responds by saying, well, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you need to love your neighbor. And then, of course, the man does what we all want to do. Who's my neighbor? Like, let's, let's figure out who this is so I know who to serve and I know who not to serve. And so then Jesus gives a story of, of a Jewish man who's leaving Jerusalem, going to Jericho, and he is, he's attacked by robbers. He's left for dead on the side of the road. A Levite and a priest, so Jews, very, very religious Jews, walk by him, and they want nothing to do with him. They're not going to dirty themselves. They're not going to trouble themselves. They're not going to serve their fellow brother. But then we have a Samaritan, one who would be considered an enemy, one who would be considered an outcast, and he's the one who comes and shows mercy and loves this man, and cares for him, and does everything he needs. And then Jesus says this, says this to the man who came to him. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now notice what Jesus did here. He turns the question around. The man asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus gives a story, and he says, which of these guys proved to be the neighbor? So the point isn't to go, okay, so who do I serve and who do I not serve? Um, but rather, wherever you are, you're to be 
the neighbor to others. You're to be the one who serves. You're to be the one who gives mercy and grace to others. And in fact, all throughout God's word, we see that Christians are to be distinguished by their love. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus says, or John writes, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He says, don't be like the Pharisees, or don't be like the Russian Orthodox Church, or don't be like just religious groups who say, hey, we're loving But then when it comes time to love, they do absolutely nothing. They're only words, but he says we are to be those who love in deed and truth. Uh, In the New Testament, the Pharisees could quote the law. They could quote much of the Old Testament, if not all the Old Testament. Um, But they did not know how to love one another. They did not know truly who God was, which is why when Jesus was there, he called them whitewashed tombs and he called them hypocrites. But to the church, to those who know Jesus, he's saying we are to be distinguished by our love. We are to love our neighbor. We are to love our family members. We are to love those in the church. We are to love those out of the church. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are to love your enemies. And Jesus said in John 13, 35, right after he got done washing the disciples' feet, he said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another? Love is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. And so you say, well, why do we love this way? Because our God is a God of love. He is love. Listen to what Jesus, or John, listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. He says, beloved, let us, not love, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Just, just think about these words for a moment. We love one another because love is from God and God is love. Okay, so God is love. Love comes from God. And then notice what's happened to us because we've been belie- we have believed in Jesus. We have been what? Born of God. So like you look or sound like your parents to some extent because you come from them. Now he's saying you are born of God, the God of love, who is love, and love comes from God. So what happens to those who are born of God? They love like God. So this isn't Jesus or John or anyone else in the New Testament telling us, hey, you just need to figure out ways to be much more loving. You need to to work yourselves up and, and become really loving people, and hopefully you can do this. But he's saying no, You now are born of God. To love like God is to be the natural work of your life because you've now been born of God. God lives in you. The God of love, his love shines brightly in you. And so if God has saved you and transformed you, then our lives are to be marked by love. And I know that some people will say things like, well, I'm not like that. It's hard for me to do that. I'm not really that kind of a loving person. I love differently. You know, whatever excuse we want. And, and so I, I just want you to, two things I guess I would say. One, if you don't live a loving life, either you're not a believer, you're just not, or you're right now resisting the work of God in you. And so you, you got to figure that part out. Um, so if you analyze, if you just examine your life, am I 
characterized by love? How would other people, what words would they use? If they wouldn't use love, then I encourage you to begin praying and wrestling through, am I saved? And if I am saved, then what is God doing in me right now that he would work more of his love into my life, that I would live a life of love to others? Because when we live a life of love, Jesus says in our text today, Matthew 5, 16, that others will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Um, many or most of the Ukrainians who have come across the borders do not know the gospel of Jesus. Um, but now many of them have come across the border where they're being served by Christians, loved by Christians, cared for by Christians, and they've heard the gospel, and they've now believed in Jesus Christ. Um, when we love others, our words and our actions are not wasted. We don't always see the result right away. Like, that's why we kind of started that way with Mother's Day. Moms, remember, you live a good example. You commit yourself to the church. You submit yourself to your husband. You live a life of godliness before your children. And there might be years or decades where you're not necessarily seeing the fruit of that, right? But we pray and we trust in the faithfulness of God that he uses those words and he uses those actions with a combination of many, many other people and many other events in our children's lives that he will bring them to Christ. Our words and our actions sow the seeds of the gospel in the lives around us. And so I want to encourage you. Let us love as Christ has loved us. The Moldovan churches are doing an amazing job of being a light in this world and loving others. And many, many people have come to know Jesus now because of that. Number two, second truth I saw lived out over there is the God of the Bible uses both good and evil as a means of bringing people to salvation. Now, all throughout the Bible, we see that God rules over every aspect of creation. Oftentimes, we think God only uses good people, like Christians, or he only uses good events. But what we see, cover to cover, is that God's providence knows no boundaries. He rules over everything. And we've preached on this a multitude of times. Like Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6. We preached in Habakkuk, I think, two years ago. We see that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. And in chapter 1, verse 6, God says, I'm the one who raises them up that they would defeat Jerusalem. It's not because of their strength. It's not because of their wisdom. It's not because of their strategy. God says, I'm the one who will raise up this pagan, wicked nation, and they will destroy this people over here. In Judges chapter 6, verse 1, we see that the reason Israel is enslaved to the Midianites for, I think it's 18 years, is because God raised up Midian to rule over Israel because of their faithlessness. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 22, we see Daniel being thrown into a lion's den. Not only does God have power over, over nations, over people, but over animals. And the next day, Darius comes and he finds out that, yes, even the God of Daniel has saved him from lions. Now, why is this important to know? Because when war comes, you want to know if God is still on his throne. When cancer, when disease, when death, when catastrophe happens, you want to go, you need to know, is my God ruling at this moment or is he on vacation? Is he on lunch break? Is he taking a nap? 
Where is he? Is he on the throne or not on the throne? When your husband, when you, when your husband or your dad has to stay in Ukraine because you don't have at least three kids, all under the age of 10, so he has to now stay, and the rest of the family can leave, and you have no idea when you'll be reunited again. You want to know, is, is this chaos? Is this just evil running rampant, and who knows what's going to happen next? Or is God on his throne? In, uh, in the book, Joy of Hearing, Tom Schreiner, he writes this. It's, it's on the book of Revelation. He says, in the book of Revelation, the word throne is used in the singular 42 times, and 37 of them refers to the throne of God. 13 times the word throne occurs with a form of the word seated, signifying God's settled authority. He says, here's the point. God's throne is in heaven, communicating the truth that God reigns over all. And thus the suffering faced by believers does not indicate that he has lost control over the universe. But he is seated on his throne, completely ruling, carrying out his very will and rule at the very moment that it looks like chaos is ruling in this world. We need to know that as we come into God's word, the God of the Bible, uh, he's not trying to put a spin on evil. He's not trying to hopefully make it turn out for good. But we know that from before time, God planned all things and that he will use it for the accomplishment of his good. We see that the God of the Bible is infinite and supreme providence, rules over evil, and uses it for the accomplishment of his purpose. And there is no clear evidence of this or example of this than the cross of Jesus Christ. If you ever just go, how can God use something horrible for good? Go to the cross of Jesus. The clearest example that we have in all of scripture because there is no more heinous and horrific event than the son of God coming to earth being spurned by his creation. Those who are made in his image that they would arrest him, beat him, and kill him. And yet, listen to what 1 Peter says in chapter 2, verse 24. And I think, I think this is up here. And just look at the last words. By his wounds, you have been healed. The only reason you have forgiveness, the only reason we can be forgiven of our sins, the reason why there is hope for humanity is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the means in which God saves us. Through suffering, God displays his glory and his grace so that we who have rejected him could be saved, could be forgiven, could be adopted into his family. And so if God can use the cross of Jesus, the suffering of the Son of God for the accomplishment of his purposes, how much more does he use the suffering in your life and my life? It's not random. It appears random from our position but we've been given the Bible, 66 books, that help us look at things from God's position, from the throne where he's seated, that we would see that he completely rules over every single event that takes place. And he is accomplishing his purposes. So that means the war in Russia and Ukraine is not evidence that God is off his throne. It is using it 
And you say, well, how is using it? Well, we don't know the grand scheme, but we see pieces. We have breadcrumbs. They're leading us to understanding what he is doing. Back in 2016, a Christian businessman in Germany began construction on, I don't remember, it's 50 or 60 houses that were to be built by or, uh, for orphans. These are like 4,000 plus square foot houses, uh, big kitchen, uh, big living room downstairs, decent sized living room upstairs, and everything else is beds uh, and bedrooms and bathrooms. And in fact, I have a couple, so I should have taken better pictures. I wasn't always thinking about um, you know, whatever. Uh, so these are two of the houses in Sinjure, which is where, um, where we spent a lot of the time in. And so these are two of the houses. This is, uh, this is what a brief little part of the bedroom looks like. There's two bunk beds, and this was one of the smaller rooms. Some of them had more bunk beds than this. Um, this is, uh, so these are uh, Michael's the one who's kind of reaching up here in the top right. Uh, he's the pastor at the church right there, and he's the one who leads this camp. Um, um, all the other women, and if you notice, uh, so you have Pavel there in the front. Marcus is sitting next to him. I went with him. Michael's over here, and there's no other men in there because all their men are in Ukraine. None of them were, were able to come across. Uh, and all of these women live together, and they, they serve together. Uh, they make food together, they, they serve one another's kids, and, and they care for one another. And they're hearing the gospel because the Christians are the ones in this camp, and they are loving these people. And in, in another place, in Balsada, there's 12 of these houses, and uh, they, there's eight of them right, right, right now used for refugees. So they have roughly 250 refugees at this camp. Two of them are for orphans and two are purposed for other things at the moment. Um, so there's 50 or 60 of these houses. They were built for orphans in 2016. And some of them still have orphans in them. But many of them, if not most of them, have been repurposed at this time, at this moment, for the meeting the needs of Ukrainian refugees and who runs every single one of these camps? Christians. Is it random? It looks random in one sense, but then all of a sudden you begin to see the pieces coming together. And these people, I mean, they're precious people coming from Ukraine. They're hearing the gospel, they're believing in Jesus, and they're very, very, very aware that the Russian Orthodox Church is doing nothing for them. And they're blown away by that. And they're blown away by the fact that Christians are the ones who are caring for them. And they have said multiple times, not necessarily to me, but to Pavel, because I don't understand anything that they say. Uh, but they said, when we go back, because they all hope to go back to Ukraine. We don't know when or if that will happen. But they all say, we will live completely different lives. We never thought about loving others like this. Like it never even crossed their mind that they would live lives of mercy to others. It's just not the way their culture was. Not that they're mean people, but just that was not what the Russian Orthodox teaches. And now, by being blessed by the gospel, many of them being changed by the gospel, are saying we will never live lives the same. We can't wait to go back and to live now what God has done through the churches here in Moldova. From cover to cover, we see that God controls 
all things in this world. Um, We need to be in our Bibles on a regular basis. If we're not in God's word, we get distracted. We forget things. And if you ever wonder if we're forgetful people, just read the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, going into the promised land, all the time, we forgot God, we forgot God, we forgot God. And God keeps doing things to remind them, I'm here, I'm here, I'm providing for you. And they just keep forgetting God. Read the book of Judges. God does something for them, saves them, and they forget God. God does something for them, saves them, and they forget God. We are forgetful people, which is why the gathering of the church is so incredibly important. The reading of God's word is so incredibly important that we would spur each other's on, that we would remind ourselves of the truth of who God is. That brings us to the next point, the gathering together. The church remains focused on mission by gathering together regularly. So one of the things I was probably mostly most impressed about going to see the churches in Moldova was their commitment to the church. They would gather Sunday morning like this. And then they would gather at some type of combination of either a Sunday night, a Monday night, a Wednesday night. I don't know why I know Tuesdays. I don't think Tuesday came up. Not sure. Uh, Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. I think there was a Friday night. And then Saturday, almost every single one of them do some type of children's outreach where they're reaching out to the children in their town, in their village, so that they would be able to share the gospel with them and reach their parents. Every single week. And it's not just that they would meet Sunday and one more. It would be two or three or four other times. And every time they gather, there's one, two, three, or four messages that are given. So after me, Raymond will come up, and then Chris will come up. And, you know, and they all preach for like 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or an hour. And they're just sitting there, and they're just committed to the church. And, and they would have choirs, which I know we don't do choirs anymore because, you know, we're in America, and I don't know why. Um, but, uh, but they would sing loudly. Then the children would all come up. They would sing loudly. Then the students would come up. They would sing loudly. Then they would all go sit down. Then the next sermon would come. And then the children would come up again and sing loudly. The students would come sing loudly. The church would sing loud. And the men, the men sang very loud. In fact, I was like blown away by how loud the men sang. It reminded me of just the joy that's expressed in the book of Revelation, when the, when the people of God are gathered around the throne of God, praising God for the salvation that he has brought them. Now, it's easy to say, well, all right, like going to church like five times a week and, you know, six sermons on a Sunday, that's cultural. True, there is cultural aspects to that. But here, here's, here's what I saw. Um, Their faith was their life. And they were gathered, they gathered often because they saw their primary identity as God's people. And other than being in the airport, I didn't see a TV. There just wasn't. In fact, only the Ukrainian refugees did I see their kids with phones. I don't even think I saw other people. I mean, other than like, you know, talking on them. But I didn't see phones. I didn't, not like we do here. It was a much simpler way of life. You say, well, that's cultural. Well, true, kind of. But what if it's more than just that? What if it's a better way to live because it's a more focused way of living too? Not saying phones and TVs are necessarily bad or evil. They can be. But what if those things serve as a distraction so much of the time 
tempting us to think more about the things of this world and the things that we think we need and all this other stuff, which distracts us from our commitment to the church, our commitment to one another, and our commitment to the mission that God has given us. Um, we preached the book of Hebrews not too long ago. And Hebrews is all about coming alongside the church to say, we, we need to make it to the end of the race. We need to run the race. And one of the ways we do that, he said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, verse 24 and 25, was to gather often. And so he said, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so if 2,000 years ago, they saw the day of Jesus drawing near, and they said, we need to make sure we gather a lot to spur each other on. And if that was 2,000 years ago, how much more should we be seeing the need to gather often? I think sometimes, in parents, we can do this. We think that our commitment to the church can be a distraction from other responsibilities like parenting and stuff, which you can be overcommitted to things. You can be. That's not always our problem, I don't think. But what if we saw our commitment to the church as a means of loving our family, as a means of discipling our family, that they would see that church is how we live life in this world? And that our primary effort and our primary work is not just simply done outside the church, but it's done within God's people. Encouraging each other, spurring one another on. And so the training of our children is not simply outside these walls, but within these walls, with the people of God, encouraging one another. Gathering reminds us of our identity in Jesus. It reminds us that we're exiles and strangers here on earth. Gathering reminds us of our hope that Jesus is returning. Gathering reminds us of our mission. We are to make disciples. We don't spend all of our time in here because we have to go outside. We have to go share the gospel. We have to go be light. But in here, we're encouraged. We're strengthened so that as we go out, we go out all the more confidently and boldly. Um, one of the things that the church that was in Sinjure, they do, during the summer, they, uh, they would gather... Uh, they would gather every single week and they'd have about 200 children. Oh, I'm not at this one yet. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there in a moment. Sorry, I blew it. Uh, I pointed up there. I threw them off. Um, they would gather every single, 200 plus kids would gather every single week and they would share the gospel with them. And they're just seeing more and more families coming to know Jesus, being brought into the church. And so I want to encourage you uh, we need to think through how we are gathering with the church. And, I, and it's not something that takes us away from our primary responsibility. But it is part of our primary responsibility of gathering together, of spurring one another on together. Um, so, yeah, we can go. Sorry, Alan. Let's do, let's do the pictures. Uh, so this is Adrian. Uh, so this was a church we went to on Wednesday night. Uh, this was the initial choir, and then many, many more people came up uh, throughout, the, throughout the times and would stand and sing. Uh, he is a much taller man than I am. I come up to his shoulder, and his wife has uh, very severe arthritis in her hands, and yet she plays the piano, 
every single, I have no idea how she does it. Uh, when you look at her hands, you have no clue, but she plays the piano every single week for the church. Uh, this is Michael's church. It looks pretty amazing from the outside. I forget uh, where the man is from, but there's a Christian contractor. I think he's in Alaska, and he, he built this building for, uh, for Michael's church. And it's just a beautiful building on the inside and how it's been made. And so uh, and I think I think there was one. Yeah, there, here's this one. So this is 16 pastors and their families all gathered together. These are all the people that Pavel's church supports each and every week. Uh, so in order to live in Moldova, you need roughly $300 a month American. Uh, and so they, I don't know at what level they're supporting them, um, but they basically pay 16 pastors' salaries every single month. So all these men and women are gathered together as a means of coming and for the purpose of encouragement. So that was one of the things that we did while we were there. Um, last point. The global church gives generously to meet the needs of the local church. And you could probably say it the other way. The local church gives generously to meet the global church. So you could probably say it both ways. Um, but I have two pictures up here. Sorry, Alan, I'm, I'm working you back there now. Uh, so this is in City Hall of, of Uben. And this is Pavel right here. And all the clothing that you see and all the shoes that you see has been donated by churches and Pavel's church. So if you go to the next picture, that's Leo. Leo is Pavel's brother, and that's, that's all been donated by either Pavel's church and or, which is the one up in Tacoma, or other churches there in, uh, in Moldova. The, the city of Ubin, the, the government there, the, the, the businesses there are, are doing nothing for the church or for the refugees, the churches are coming together. And, and what's neat is that it's the global church, so churches not in Moldova are largely providing all the things that are needed to help the Christians who are there to shine brightly as a light for the gospel that more and more people would come to know Jesus. And so uh, We've already mentioned that like the orphan houses that were temporary have been repurposed in order for refugees. Uh, the NEB Northwest, so our, our regional association, they gave, and I'm not sure where it was, between seven dollars and $10,000 to the refugees. Pavel's Church, I think, has raised somewhere around $20,000. We gave almost $12,000. Uh, and then just stepping back from even this event right here, uh, just speaking about things that God has done in this church, we've given over the last couple of years over $20,000 to help local NEB churches, whether it's church plants or, or just churches who have various needs up here in this area. We've given money for pastors who are in India who have had their houses destroyed by persecution, who have had their motorcycles taken, which is their primary means of getting to different villages where they share the gospel. Uh, we have had opportunity to give money to missionaries in Lebanon and other places, uh, you all have been very, very, very generous with the money that God has blessed you with, and God uses that as a means of advancing his purposes in the global church. And that's pretty amazing. Um, and actually, we see that truth in Scripture. 2 Corinthians says this. It says, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burden, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time 
should supply their need so their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So this passage has been lived out by Pavel's church, by many of the NAB Northwest churches, and here by Timberline. Um, remember, the title today is, is Be Encouraged. God is using your work as a means of equipping and encouraging the global church today. Your work matters. So like when you go to work tomorrow, and some of you are going, God, I don't like my job, or, or whatever else it is, your work is not primarily paying for your mortgage and clothing and food. It does that, I hope. But it does more than that also. As you give generously and whatever that looks like here, God uses that as a means of not only blessing here and blessing this local area, but then blessing other parts of the world. So they'd be equipped, so they'd be provided for, so they'd be able to be resourced to meet the needs of anyone who is around them. Because as the text says, you've, you have abundance now. And that's one thing we can say in America. We have an abundance. Definitely in comparison to churches in other places of the world. We have an abundance. So whatever that looks like here, so that when we give, God uses it for the purpose of meeting needs. So I want to encourage you, work hard. Don't stop working and give. Give generously because by your working and your giving, God is advancing the gospel in other parts of the world. So I encourage you, consider always what you give. Not because what you give goes to making this place nicer or better. Um, we do meet needs here. But so that we will be prepared to meet the needs of other people. And that's one thing that God has done in you over the last couple years at this church is that when there's been a need that's risen, we often already have the money ready. And we say, hey, how about we give this 5000 How about we give this 10000 And how about we bless this church? In fact, at the end of this last year, I don't even remember what the number is that we ended up in the black. It was 70, 80, or 100000 I you have any clue what it was? I have no clue what it was. Um, but there was needs locally in other churches. We were already prepared to meet those needs. And then when there's opportunity that rises like in March, and we said, hey, let's just give, and we'll take some special Sundays, and we'll even have chili and pie together if you came to that night, which was incredible. Uh, and we'll just use it all as a means of a fundraiser. And you all gave roughly $12,000 we're not a big church. So I, I'm, I'm impressed by that and thinking that's how God's grace worked in and through you. That that money would be freed up for the purpose of advancing his gospel. And so I want to encourage us, let's continue to work. Let's work hard not to build bigger barns. Not to make bigger barns. We don't need necessarily more stuff. But so we can give more and more away for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those are just several ways, four ways, that I've seen that the churches in Moldova shine brightly for the hope of the gospel, and you are an intricate part of that as well as so many other churches. So I pray, be encouraged today, because our God is not just the God of, of Thurston County, of Washington, or America, but he's the God of the universe, and in his perfect providence. He will use war. He will use disease and chaos and catastrophe and so many other things as a means of bringing people, moving people out of their comforts, moving people out of their homes, moving people to different areas where they will hear the gospel. 
and they will be saved, and they will be used in incredible ways then for advancing the gospel in other places. And so let us continue to let our light shine before others that they may see our good works so that when Jesus returns, they would give glory to our Father who is in heaven. There is no greater purpose that we have than living for the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling others about him, gathering together, encouraging one another, and going out of these walls and being a light through our words and through our actions. And so uh, I pray that you are encouraged today that God is working here, and some of the things he's doing here, he's doing in, in far-off places also. Uh, so I pray, be encouraged, and let us, uh, we're going to take communion now. And we're going to, before we do it, we'll pray and we'll take communion. And as we do that, I want you to remember, it's, it's through the cross that we have hope. So when we look at war, we look at problems, we look at things that occur, let's not move, be moved to chaos in our minds. But let's be moved to, okay, our God is in control. I don't know what he's doing at the moment, but I can rest in the truth. He will use suffering for his glory. He will use what appears to be chaos for the very means of accomplishing his purposes. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you are not just a local deity, but you are a cosmic deity. You rule supreme over the entire universe. That, Lord, you, you are right now bringing people from Ukraine into Moldova into so many other parts of Western Europe where they're being cared for by Christians, where they're being loved and their needs are being met, and they're hearing the gospel for the first time, and they're being saved. And so, Lord, we praise you for that. And, Father, I pray for us as a church, as we've just kind of taken a step back today and looking at what you were doing globally. God, may our hearts be encouraged. God, you are using the very things that are happening here in our workplaces for the advancement of your gospel, not only here, but also globally. And so, Father, may you continue to use us. May you use your churches in Moldova as a means of encouraging us and strengthening us. And may we be used to encourage them. God, we thank you that the church is your body, is your bride. And we are held together by your blood. And that one day we will be together, gathered together, tribes, tongues, nations, and all different languages around your throne as we praise and we worship you. So, Father, we long for that day. We look forward to that day. And, Lord, as we take communion today now, may we rest in the truth that you're in control and that your cross of Jesus Christ is the answer to our pain, to our suffering, and most of all to our sin. And may we take great comfort that you rule at all times. In your name, Jesus, amen.